Well, we saw uh, last week, Jesus, he cries out, I believe he cries out to the Father, I thirst. And then after he's given a drink of sour wine, he bowed his head. And, and really, we could, we could have spent more time on that. The, the expression, he bowed his head, is only used one other time in the Bible. And it's used for a place to lay your head in sleep. And so we have this sense of Jesus choosing to give up his life, bowing his head, giving up his spirit. And now John goes on to tell us what happens to the body of Jesus after he died. And I love, I love this because at every step along the way, we're going to be seeing how, how, and in this case, even in the death of Jesus, we see the saving triumph of Jesus. So, so there's something that happens in between Jesus dying and Jesus being taken down from the cross and buried. Something happens in between that enables us to continue seeing the glory of our Redeemer. Sometimes you just don't have words for what God has given us in the scriptures. So we start in verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, uh, preparation for the Sabbath, so it's now Friday, so that the days would not, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So normally, from you may have discovered this too from your own reading, uh, but I have learned that. The Romans would leave crucified victims to linger on the cross until they died. And sometimes, for several days, the cross was not a a quick death. It could last for several days, at least more than than one day. Um, And then after they had died, they would leave them on the cross to be uh, devoured by, by the vultures and the birds. That's just... What they did. And if there was need then to hasten death, to make death come faster, the victim would be brutally put out of his misery. So it was, in a sense, a mercy, but a brutal mercy. Uh, by, by crushing or breaking their legs with an iron hammer. Um, this was had a, a formal name for it, the crufragium, I believe. I'm not, don't speak Latin. Maybe some of you speak it better than I do. But that's what it was called, this practice. This resulted in a much faster rate of blood loss, as well as in suffocation, because you couldn't support yourself any longer to fill your lungs with air. This is what the Jews have in mind. This is what they're thinking when they come to Pilate. They want the death of Jesus and these two men who were crucified with him to be hurried up because they don't want them left hanging there overnight. They appear to have in mind this passage from the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a sin, the judgment of which is death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. So in this context, he's already dead. Maybe he's been stoned. But then, in light of the nature of his offense, they, they then hang his dead body up from a tree as a, as a shame and as and really a, a warning to others of breaking God's laws. So if you hang him up on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, because cursed of God is he who is hanged. So that you do not make unclean your land, which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, apparently the Jews were not normally concerned with leaving crucified victims to hang overnight. Or maybe they would have been more concerned if they were in control of things. But it's the Romans doing the crucifying. And so it's just 
the Romans aren't probably going to cater to the Jews at every cent, in every instance and say, okay, we'll break their legs every time. No, the Jews, the Romans were going to leave them there to suffer for as long as um, they wanted. So, but in this case, maybe the Jews are especially insistent because, number one, tomorrow is the Sabbath, and that's a special day. But number two, it's not just any Sabbath, it's the Passover Sabbath. It's a high holy day. It's a high holy Sabbath. And so we see that the religious leaders are zealous. We get this picture into, into what's going on in their minds. They're, they're passionate for the Passover festival. I think it's easy to make them out to be complete monsters. And at one level, perhaps they are. Perhaps at one level, we're all complete monsters. But these religious leaders love to celebrate Israel's redemption from Egypt. That's what this is about, right? When God redeemed them from Egypt with the ten plagues, and they crossed the Red Sea. And so they believe, and and, and I appreciate this, I I think this is good, they believe it would be wrong uh, to leave these victims of God's curse hanging overnight on the cross when the next day is such a day of such holy joy. It doesn't jive. It doesn't look right. It's not appropriate. And yet we can see the very tragic irony in this, can't we? The same Jewish leaders seem to have forgotten something, and I think sometimes we forget it too, maybe. The Passover represented not just Israel being got out of Egypt, right? Delivered from Egypt. But in your handout, Israel's own deliverance from divine judgment and death. Remember when the destroying angel came around? Who was the destroying angel going to kill? All the firstborn of who? Egyptians and Israelites alike. It didn't matter. If you were a Jew, your firstborn was dying. Unless you had the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. So the Passover is a reminder of Israel's own need for a greater and more permanent redemption from sin and death. The Jewish leaders were all happy because look what God did. He got us out of Egypt. He delivered us from slavery to the Egyptians. But I think what they tended to forget was that they all would have died too if they had not applied the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorpost. It wasn't just Egypt in danger. And so the Passover pointed to the hope of another exodus when they would be given not just a temporal inheritance in in earthly Jerusalem, but an eternal inheritance in a heavenly Jerusalem. This is what it pointed to. Abraham got that, albeit not through the Passover. Hadn't been instituted yet. But Abraham saw the hope of a heavenly Jerusalem. And the chief priests had become so earthly minded, they weren't seeing things as their father had seen things. They weren't understanding the Passover. And so in short, the Passover should have pointed these religious leaders to Jesus. The very one whose death they have now demanded and asked to be hastened by breaking his legs so he won't be left hanging on what? On a Passover Sabbath. Here then is a blind hypocrisy that staggers the mind. Oh, how they love the Passover. Oh, how they want to celebrate God's mighty deliverances in the past. And yet they have hung up the Passover lamb to die on a cross and now request his legs be broken so they can get him off the cross in time for their holy Passover Sabbath. It's a blind hypocrisy that staggers the mind, but can you see also a divine sovereignty? that literally staggers our mind. I don't think that's overstating it. In the sovereignty of God, it is precisely their sinful blindness that brings about the fulfillment of the Passover in the death of Jesus. 
Because I, I kept, I mean, this is where I go crazy because I'm like, oh, if only they would have seen. And then you wonder, if they would have seen, where would our Passover lamb be? We see the sovereignty of God, which defies all our attempts to penetrate, all of our attempts to understand. But not only does it defy all of our attempts to penetrate, it it therefore humbles us and comforts us. This is a God that is that sovereign. But we also see not only the sovereignty of God, but we see in the Jews' blind hypocrisy a warning against being so blind ourselves. And this is the tension, right? Because some might say, well, if God is that sovereign... Then if I'm, gonna, if I'm to end up like the Jewish leaders and that blind, I guess I will. Shame on you. That's all I have to say to you. Right? If that's, if that's the response of a Christian to this reality, on the other hand, we dare not deny the reality of this sovereignty of God. So we live with this tension. How important then it is that we learn to say with the psalmist, that God protect us from this kind of blindness, who can discern his errors? Brothers and sisters, can you? Can you discern your errors? The answer is no. No, not in yourself. We are just as blind as the next, apart from the grace of God opening our eyes to see. Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Now, if you will do that, God, and this is what I desire, then I will be blameless. Not, not perfect or without sin, but, but covered, cleansed, uh, walking in the right way, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth on the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. That was a prayer the chief priests and Pharisees were not praying. At least not from the heart. Well, John's primary point is not that these things serve as an example or a lesson to us, though they do, and I I think John likely had that in mind. His point is that as a direct result of this request, I mean, here again is the sovereignty of God. Not only do we see this Passover lamb theme, but we see the fact that by the very fact that they ask for Jesus' legs to be broken, we are about to see more of who Jesus is in the very request they make, which is brutal on its own and, and, and terrible. And so that in seeing who Jesus is, we might believe in him and have life in his name. That's why he includes this little bit here. So let's continue in verses 32 to 34. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. I'm going to take a little detour here for a moment. It it ends up not being a detour, but it'll certainly feel like it for a moment. Uh, First, I want to ask, what are we to make of this blood and water? And that's actually a real question. You don't have to answer it out loud. But what do you make of this blood and water that came out when Jesus' side was pierced? Certainly over the centuries, particularly in the uh, Roman Catholic, ancient Roman Catholic tradition, some have suggested that this was a miraculous event. And so if this was a miracle, if this blood and water coming out of Jesus' side was a miraculous event, you could imagine what kind of blood and what kind of water is coming out. If it's a miracle, I would assume God, God provided for crystal clear, pure water to come out of his side, and, and pure red blood, unmixed with any other bodily fluids, right, coming out. 
And so in that case, you know, and so we, we have this picture now of blood and water flowing as from a spring or a fountain, right? If it's a miracle, I'm, I'm assuming that's what happened. This miraculous flow of blood and water would then, obviously, where are you going with this? If it's a miracle, then there's a reason God did it, so it must be symbolic of something. Certainly, blood is symbolic of forgiveness and of life. Water is also symbolic of cleansing and of life. And it's these things that flow to us through Jesus' death. Now, is there anything blasphemous about that interpretation? Anything heretical? It's, it, to the contrary, it's very spiritually edifying. It gives us lots of space for meaningful meditation. But there's no hint in the text that John believed he was witnessing a miracle. And yet, sometimes, even those who don't believe there's a miracle here, they would say, no, there's no miracle, it's just what happened. They would still argue that John saw, John saw in the blood and the water a symbol of forgiveness and cleansing. So, in the hymn, Rock of Ages, which I have at times changed the wording to in the past because I was uncomfortable with it. Um, it says, Rock of Ages, oh, and I love, by the way, Rock of Ages. There's the rest of the thing I love, and even this part. It's very spiritually edifying, right? Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side, which Notice the word that's chosen here, which flowed. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath, that would be the blood, and make me pure. There you have the water. So what do you think? And why should it matter? Why do we care? Well, I'm personally not convinced of this reading for four reasons. And I'm just going to run through them briefly. First, John goes on to draw out the the significance of the fact that Jesus' legs were not broken and his side was pierced. But he says nothing more about blood and water. He mentions it, and then he goes on to say, now, his legs weren't broken, his side was pierced. Now, I want to draw special attention to that. Nothing about blood and water. Second, if this was not a miracle, with pure water flowing from Jesus' side, I think it would have been hard to see in this water, which was likely, John was referring to a clear, pale, straw-colored serum, a symbol of that which cleanses and purifies. I'm just not sure that John could have seen a symbol of that in what's coming out of his side. John simply says that the blood and water came out. He doesn't describe it flowing or, as it were, from a spring or a fountain. Third, nowhere else in the Bible do we have, and this is interesting, nowhere else do we have such a crassly, literal portrayal of cleansing, life-giving water that Jesus provides. Like Jesus cleanses us. Remember that water that came out of his body? That's nowhere else do we have an example of that kind of thing. In fact, nowhere else in the Bible do we have such a crassly literal portrayal of Jesus' cleansing, life-giving blood. We are are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Remember that blood that came out of his body? Nowhere else do we have that anywhere in Scripture. And here's, let me point it like this. Okay, the blood of Jesus. There's nothing magical about the blood, right? Because if there was, you'd need some of it on you. Right now. So there's nothing actually magical about the physical substance of the blood. The blood symbolizes the life of the body and the shedding of the blood, the giving of life in death for someone else. And so that blood now brings cleansing. But it's symbolic. It represents. It doesn't do it on its own. And so it's interesting that it's, well, we know it's spiritual. The blood of Jesus is spiritually applied to me through faith. Now, it's interesting, I looked it up, I'd never looked at this before. In all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, 
In all their accounts of the crucifixion, not one other time is the blood of Jesus mentioned. Not one other time do we hear about blood. In any of the Gospels, the blood of Jesus never mentioned. Except for when Jesus, which is not in the crucifixion account, Jesus says, this is my blood, what he drinks, what, what they drink. Finally, if this was not a miracle, and if there's no specific scripture being fulfilled, then we have to ask this question. Now, this is perhaps the most important, so try to grasp this. We have to ask, how does the blood and water that came out of Jesus' side, if this is not a miracle, and it's not fulfilling a scripture, how does this compel us to believe that he is the Christ? the Son of God. Okay, why do I spend so much time on this? Well, because I think we need to ask ourselves this question. Is there really anything wrong with the spiritually edifying fruit of a sanctified imagination? It's spiritually edifying and it's sanctifying, right? In other words... You might ask me, and I could ask you, hey, if it's produced by a sanctified imagination, an imagination truly rooted in love to God and and love for his word, and if the result of this is something that's just spiritually edifying and gives lots of space for meditation, then what's the danger? What is the problem? The answer to this question is this, that very subtly, the scriptures are emptied. They are literally emptied of their own intrinsic power and authority and beauty. And that power and authority and beauty, it comes to reside in you and to reside in me, in us. It becomes a construct that we create. So what is the power and authority and beauty of that passage, of that verse about water, blood and water came out of his side? Well, whether or not anyone intended it, John intended it, or the Bible did, or God did, I see this in it, and so now I'm going to take that and meditate on that. And what did we just do? We made ourselves the source of the Bible's beauty and power and authority. I can only then respond to that, God forbid, may it never be. So why did I spend so much time this week? And I wrestled with this. And sometimes I ask myself, why am I wrestling? Who cares about the significance of the blood and the water and searching out how should I preach this blood and water? Because I believe it's when we do this. It's when we wrestle. It's when we work to try to understand what is God saying here. It's then that the true power and authority and beauty of God's word is made fully effective in my life who sits underneath it, needing it to do its work in me. How do you approach the scriptures? Do we approach it truly as humble slaves of God, right? Needing his word and its authority to do its work in us. There are subtle ways that we turn that around. And that doesn't mean you have to get it right every time or that I have to get it right every time. It just means that that's our approach. That's what we work at. All right. That was our detour. So why does John mention the blood and the water? There we are, back where we started. Well, John includes this detail just because it's what he saw happen. Brothers and sisters, he was there. He saw it happen. And he saw it happen in connection with the spear thrust into Jesus' side. And that's what John finds most important. We'll see that next week in verse 37. He's going to quote a fulfillment of scripture in the piercing of Jesus' side. The blood and water that came out show us just how real that piercing was. And so also they show us the reality of Jesus' death. That he was really, truly dead. Dead. Verse 30, John says that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, that sounds, he died, right? 
He went to sleep. We could look at it almost, and in a sense, that's true. We know the resurrection is coming. But in verse 33, John says that when the soldiers came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So twice we have this idea of death. Verse 34, apparently, to be sure Jesus is really dead, one of the soldiers pierces his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Well, that satisfied the soldiers. Jesus was indeed dead. And John means for us to see, too, that Jesus is really and truly dead. John was there. He saw it. And now what is it that's hanging on the cross? It is an entirely lifeless body hanging there on the cross. If Jesus didn't truly die, not some spiritual substitute for death, this is not just some idea. No, we know death in all its reality, don't we? Death, death is, is ugly. It's, it's painful. It's, it's grievous, at least in our experience. If Jesus didn't truly die, we cannot say he tasted death for us. If he wasn't truly dead, then how can we say that by his resurrection he has rendered powerless him who holds the power of death? Or that he has freed you and me, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. But he did truly die. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows what death is. And so John continues in verse 35, speaking, I believe, of himself in the third person. And he who has seen has borne witness. And his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. What is it that John saw? And what is it he's bearing witness to? Not just the blood and water, but to, in your handout, the holy, unexpected turn of events whereby the legs of Jesus' dead body Okay, remember, we're dealing with a dead body here. The legs of Jesus' dead body were not broken, and whereby the side of Jesus' dead body was pierced. (laughs) When the soldiers come to Jesus, they see he's already dead. In light of how unusual that was, the other two are, all, are still alive, and always, I mean, the chief priests and Pharisees, they assumed Jesus would still be alive, but they see he's dead. Well, they come and see that. They want to be absolutely sure he's dead. So what do you do if you're these barbaric Roman soldiers? Well, you break Jesus' legs too. Why not? John recounts what happened in such a way that we naturally expect they will break his legs. Look how he writes it. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, contrary to expectation, the soldiers choose instead to pierce his side with a spear. What is it then about this holy, unexpected turn of events that calls you and me to believe? See, that's the question. It's not, what is it that's really cool about this? It's, what is it that calls me to believe? What is it about this, how this dead body of our Lord is treated that calls us to believe? And John answers, and this is as far as we'll go this week, For these things came to pass in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, filled up. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Now, when you read that, and all you read is that, it could be like, oh, the Bible said that when Jesus dies, his bones won't be broken. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. It's much more beautiful. It's something that calls us to believe in Jesus as our Savior, our Redeemer. 
So in Exodus chapter 12, God gives these instructions concerning the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb shall be eaten in a single house. You shall not bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any bone of it, of the goat or of the lamb. And then in Psalm 34, we read, Many are the evils against the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. How does this work? First of all, I don't think we need to decide which scripture John has in mind. I'm quite positive he has them both in his mind. So Exodus chapter 12, but first, four times, John has reminded us explicitly that Jesus' sufferings and death are taking place during a specific Jewish festival. It's the Passover festival. And just a moment ago, we were reminded that this is the day of preparation for the Sabbath, and this Sabbath is a high day. It's the Passover Sabbath. So John is asking himself, and he's asking you and me to ask ourselves, what does it mean when the soldiers break the legs of the two other crucified men, and then in a wholly unexpected turn of events, choose not to break the legs of the dead body of Jesus. The Passover lamb or goat, God said to his people, shall be eaten in a single house. You shall not bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any bone of it. Now, John is not just seeing a cool connection. Oh, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Because look, his bones weren't broken. Well, what about any other man whose bones were not broken? Right? So the fact that Jesus' bones were not broken doesn't prove anything in and of itself. But what we see in this is that, yes, Jesus is the one in whom the Passover sacrifice is fulfilled. It's filled up in Jesus. John's main point is this. If this is so, then even the lifeless body of Jesus, as it hangs there on the cross, is not a defeat. If this is so, if Jesus is the one in whom the Passover sacrifice is fulfilled, then what does that lifeless body hanging on the cross mean? It is the sign to us of victory. So the death that in every other case always signifies defeat, what do we know death to be, brothers and sisters? Only a source of grief, of pain, of suffering. But in this case, the death that in every other case signifies defeat, now in Jesus signifies salvation. It is important that we see Jesus dead and that we see in that one death of all deaths, not defeat, but salvation. Just as it was by the death of a one-year-old unblemished lamb or goat that all the firstborn in Israel were delivered from death at the hands of the angel, so now it's by the death of Jesus that we're delivered from death. And so we behold not only the Jesus suffering on the cross, not only the Jesus raised up from the dead, but the Jesus who was dead. Truly dead. In Exodus, the significance of not breaking the bones, and you could go back, the, the message is on the website, But why did God tell them you shall not break a bone of the Passover sacrifice? Well, because that had to do with the oneness and the wholeness of the congregation of God's people as they all partook of that meal together. Don't break any bone in it because God is creating a one and a whole people. 
And so now what do we see in Jesus? Look, brothers and sisters, look, look and see. In the Passover sacrifice, whose bones were not broken, we see the oneness and the wholeness of this congregation and of the congregation of all God's people who partake of Christ together as we will. At the end of this service in the Lord's Supper, representing how we partake of him together by faith. Notice that there's no prediction in Exodus 12. Again, we brought that out. There's only a command. There's no prediction, just a command. You shall not break the bones of the Passover lamb or goat. And so John's point is not that because a prediction has been matched, therefore we have proof Jesus is the Messiah. That's not what he's saying. John's point is that because the Passover is filled up in the death of Jesus, And brothers and sisters, how do we see that the Passover is filled up in the death of Jesus? With the eyes of faith. When we see that, then we see that, therefore, his lifeless body is not a defeat. It is the sign of our salvation. Because the Passover is fulfilled in the death of Jesus, therefore even his lifeless body is the sign to us that the second exodus is here and we are entering our eternal inheritance. Here then is an apologetic designed not just to appeal academically to the mind, but rather to call forth saving faith in the heart. Here is an apologetic designed not to convince our minds of a fact, which is oftentimes as far as all our our apologetics go. So much of apologetics today is simply intended to persuade people in their heads and win an argument. Even if we start out with better intentions, it often degenerates to that. But this is an apologetic designed not just to convince our minds of a fact, but rather to rejoice our hearts in a saving truth. Psalm 34 is a psalm of David. Coming to the other passage that John has in his mind. It's a psalm of David. Ascribed to the time when he feigned madness before Abimelech. So that he drove him away and he departed. That's the title of the psalm. So it's this. Okay, David's running for his life. He's running away from Saul. The king of Israel. Who wants him dead. He runs away to Abimelech. And he finds now his life is once again threatened by the servants of Abimelech, the king of Gath. So everywhere David goes, he's wanted dead. When David feigned to be insane, Abimelech said, I have plenty of madmen in my presence, what do I need one more? And he drove David away. So what is Psalm 34? It's David's psalm of praise for all of God's many, in your handout, many deliverances from death. Psalm 34, 19 to 20 says, Many are the evils against the righteous. And David is thinking of all sorts of them. Saul's persecution, Abimelech's persecution, running, fleeing everywhere he goes, not having a place to sleep. And yet Yahweh delivers him out of them all. And then David uses this picture. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Did you see a prediction there? Is there a prediction? Well, kind of, but it's a prediction, I guess, of all the righteous. So it's not necessarily unique to Jesus. If this was a prediction that Jesus' bones would not be broken, look, it said it, Psalm 34, Jesus' bones won't be broken. If that was the case, then we have to take this completely out of context. Right? Because the verse about no broken bones is in the context of being kept alive. Is David going to die? No, he's not going to die. Because God's going to keep all his bones. David will not die by the hand of those who hate him. But what happened in the case of Jesus, brothers and sisters? He did die. Those who hated Jesus did put him to death. So how do we make sense of that? In the original context of Psalm 34, this, the idea that the bones of David's dead body would not be broken would have made total nonsense of the psalm. But why is that? It's because David is David. 
He's not the Messiah. It's because David is not the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice. Jesus is. Jesus is David's greater son. And so therefore, look at this. Here it is. As the truly righteous one of Psalm 34, the fact that the bones of Jesus' dead body are not broken must be the sign that all of God's previous deliverances from death are about to be fulfilled. And a deliverance from death far greater and more wonderful than all those that came before. Yeah, David had some pretty amazing deliverances from death. From death at Saul's hands, at Abimelech's hands, and at numerous other people's hands. David had many deliverances from death, but none of them, none of them as wonderful as this kind of deliverance from death that his greater son is about to experience. And so with John, therefore, we see We see in the preservation of the bones of Jesus' dead body the promise and the guarantee of his resurrection. We see the filling up of all the previous deliverances from death that God had worked in the lives of his people. We see them all filled up in the Messiah's deliverance from death through death. We see and the preservation of the bones of Jesus. And you can see the preservation, right? John describes it vividly. You see the soldiers coming up to the one and going up to the other and then looking at Jesus thinking, he's already dead, what do we do? And then they don't break his legs. What do we see? We see the sign that here is our Passover sacrifice who, having finally accomplished It is accomplished, Jesus just said, before he died. Having finally accomplished our salvation, he will live again. That's the point of Psalm 34. Here then again is an apologetic intended not just to appeal to your head, but to call forth in you and to be continuously cultivating in you saving faith. So brothers and sisters, I invite you to go home and read this text and read this passage and meditate on it and see his bones not being broken and see in this fulfillment of the Passover lamb and the deliverances from death the accomplishment of your salvation. Here is an apologetic intended to rejoice our hearts in saving truth. What did John say? He who has seen has borne witness and his witness is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. We read the passion narratives, the the accounts of Jesus' sufferings and of his death. And not for a single moment do we find ourselves in a dark place. The disciples found themselves in a dark place because they didn't understand they were living in the midst of it. But we read it, and we do not for a single moment find ourselves in a dark place. And why is that? Brothers and sisters, it's not just because we know the ending. It's not just because we know how it ends. It's because looking back, we see now at every single step along the way, at every single step bar none, the unfolding of God's salvation for a sinner like you and I am. We see even In, in the otherwise hopeless specter of a dead corpse, we see the sign of God's triumph in our salvation. And we see that brought out to us 
and his legs not being broken, and next week, and his side instead being pierced. Because we are in Christ, we can make David's words our own. Jesus made them his own. We can make them our own and see in them the assurance of our own ultimate deliverance from death. What is it? We who through fear of death were kept in slavery all our lives. Yet as we look at this dead body of Jesus on the cross, we're delivered from our fear of death. We see in this the assurance of our own ultimate deliverance from death and of God's faithful love and preserving care at every step along the way. See, God hasn't promised, of course, to keep us from death, even violent death, even, even a martyr's death at the hands of a hostile world. But what he, what he has promised is to keep us from death through resurrection. And what he has also promised is that he doesn't just give us resurrection life at the end. He promises us to keep us, to preserve us, to sustain us at every step along the way until that day is reached. This is why we can read and say and pray these words with the psalmist. So now, read these words in the light of their fulfillment in Jesus. The psalmist is celebrating deliverances from death. What does it mean when this psalm is applied to Jesus, who was not delivered from death the way we expect? Psalm 34, 1 to 8, and then 15 to 22. Let us read, and I'm not just reading to you. I would like to say these from my heart. May you say them and pray them from your heart. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify Yahweh with me, and let us exalt his name together. I inquired of Yahweh, and he answered me, and delivered me from all that I dread. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be humiliated. This poor man called out, and Yahweh heard him. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm reading a different translation than what's on the screen, I think. And saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints, for there is no want to those who fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who inquire of Yahweh shall not be in want of any good thing. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of Yahweh is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the evils against the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. And this is true today, even in a more fuller sense than it was then. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Yahweh redeems the soul of the life of his slaves. And all those who take refuge in him will not be condemned. So I ask you and I ask myself, is Yahweh's praise continually in your mouth? Have you been delivered from all that you dread? What do you dread? Have you been delivered from it all and saved out of all your troubles? Have you tasted? Have you tasted and seen that Yahweh is good? Have you, have you actually cried for help and found that he is always near? Do you believe that while this literally happened in the case of Jesus, 
because it happened in the case of Jesus, we know that the message is true for us. Do you believe that he will keep all your bones so that not one of them will be broken? It's in the context of this salvation we have that we also, and that we have in Christ, right? That we love to say with David. Because who is it that God gives life to? It's to those, it's to the righteous, to those who fear the Lord by faith. And so we love to say in the context of this salvation with David, come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. Who is the man who delights in life and loves many days? And we're thinking also, we're thinking of resurrection here as the continuation of this life we already have now. Who is it that delights in life and loves many days that he may see good? Guard your tongue from evil. And that's not, that's not just don't say swear words, right? Guard your tongue from evil. The tongue reflecting all that's in our hearts. And your lips from speaking deceit. That's not just saying don't tell lies. That's saying be, be a man of in, and woman of integrity who is sincere and genuine serving God from the heart. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace. And pursue it. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that even in the dead body of our Lord hanging on the cross, and as we'll come to in a couple of weeks, lying in the tomb, we see in that, in that dead body, which is at all the times a specter of defeat, of grief, that we see in this the sign of salvation come and accomplished, and in fact, the guarantee that death has not had the final word. And that Sunday morning is coming. We thank you, Lord, that at every step along the way, we see your sovereign goodness in unfolding the the work of our salvation. We thank you that when the soldiers came to Jesus, They didn't break his legs. And that they pierced his side with a spear. We thank you that in these things, we see our Passover lamb whose bones were not broken. And the first and only Passover lamb, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, who lives again. Lord, may we, we, as we see and gaze upon these things, may we, as John desired, that we should, may we believe. May saving faith be not only called forth from us, but daily cultivated in us as we come to the scriptures and see Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that now you are near to all those who call upon you. Thank you that you will deliver us from death and from all that we dread. Thank you that every step until that way, until that day, you preserve and keep and sustain us and are ever faithful. Help me to believe this. Help me to live it. And help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.